<clears throat> well, thank you, Mark. Uh, like he said, <clears throat> it's been a few months since we first met, and I've been looking forward to coming and uh, meeting all of you and, and sharing this morning for quite a while. And you already know this, but I've got to tell you, you've got a good man in Mark, so uh, I've appreciated getting to know him and the passion that he brings to uh, not only his own family, but to this ministry here at your church. Well, guys, this morning, I'm a little bit hot on that microphone if you want to adjust that a little bit, but <clears throat> we're all here today for different reasons. And uh, you may be here today because you're a parent and you have kids in your own house right now. That's kind of an obvious application. Uh, you may be here because you're a mentor to one or two boys in grade school or high school. Maybe you're not, but you'd like to be a mentor. And you're not yet because you really don't know quite exactly what you'd share with these boys. Uh, I can tell looking around the room, uh, some of you are granddads. And you're thinking about that next generation that's coming up from your son or daughter. And no matter what your experience was when you were a father, you're saying to yourself, you know, maybe I've learned some things and I'd like to do something to influence those grandkids. All of you are here for a reason today. And even if, even if you don't specifically fit into one of those categories, I want to challenge you that the principles we're going to talk about can apply to you personally, not just to the children and the students <clears throat> that you will hopefully have contact with. Passing the Baton, the book that you all received this morning, <clears throat> is really more the what and the how to communicate life's great principles to the students in our lives. Men, I want to tell you, this is not a book to encourage you to be a godly father. So just, let's just make that really clear at the beginning. We have a lot of those books, and they're great, and I'm glad for them. Uh, this isn't one of them. Now, I will tell you that, however, that on, on the backswing, in the course of doing what passing the baton recommends, oh, you'll be encouraged. There's nothing like really doing it to be encouraged. It'll do much more than any book you'll read. So in that sense, it will be encouraging. But today's book is really a little bit different than other ones that you, uh, that you might have read. <clears throat> I want to, it's, it's, it's a book, obviously, but it's more of a user's manual. You're going to look in that book, and as we're going to unpack it a little bit today, we're going to realize that it is exactly that. It's 100 life principles and skills with a three-page treatment of each one, something you can digest easily and quickly, and you can say, this is something I could work with my students or the kids that I'm mentoring. So in that sense, it's a little different than other books that you would read. Some of us, I think, uh, maybe it's probably true for all of us, you're 30, you're 40, you're, especially if you're 50 or 60 today, I think you might agree with me when I say that we've learned some things at this stage of life that if we only knew them when we were 20, maybe life would have been a little bit different. How many of us in this room 
no matter what your experience was with your dad, would give our right arm if when we were seven or eight or 10 or 13 years old, our dad had come alongside of us and been able to teach us some of the things about how life really works and some of the things to do and some of the things to avoid and how life really works and we wouldn't have had to learn it on the hard edge of life when we were 35 or 40. Hopefully, we can always look forward and not back. And hopefully that can be our experience as we get into passing the baton today. So as we get going, <clears throat> let me ask this question. We were all in high school at one point. I hope that puts a smile on your face uh, when you think back on that. But uh, think back to your own high school experience for a minute. How many of you in the room today uh, were the athletes? You were the jocks, and that's what you did in high school. We got a good percentage of the room. You were the athletes. How many of you were the academic types and you were in the science club and you were academic? Anybody? We got one, two, who are proud to say that they were, they were academics. Thank you very much. Um, how, about, how about any of you were in the music and the drama programs at your school? Yeah, some were. I spent most of my time uh, in the music and the drama department. And one of the shows that we did when I was there was called Fiddler on the Roof. How many of you know the, know the show I'm talking about? Fiddler on the Roof is a wonderful musical. <clears throat> and it tells the story of an Orthodox Jew living over in, in Russia around the, turn, around the time of the First World War. His name is Tevia. And Tevia goes through all of the difficult circumstances that make for a great musical. But one of the songs and one of the themes in the show that you may remember, he sings, sunrise, sunset, sunrise, sunset. Isn't this the little girl I carried? Isn't this the little boy at play? And he's singing this at his daughter's wedding. And you know, like Tevia, if you were to ask any dad, 100%, when their son or their daughter is graduating from high school and going off to college, or maybe it's at a wedding, or they're leaving home and they're going to the military, 100% will say, wasn't it just yesterday when they were small? Where did the years go? I can remember carrying them this big. And just like Tevia, we would sing that song. But I want to tell you guys, there's a, a way we can look at this that is more positive than that. And those years don't have to slip away from us without any control over them. And this is what the book presents, and you'll see it on the back cover. But we're going to talk about it this morning. And so if you're taking notes, by the way, Mark, do we have the notes handed out? Good. Okay, very good. I'm glad you do. If you have the sheet, uh, the 18-year horizon is at the, be is at the beginning. <clears throat> Here's how the 18-year horizon works, guys. Imagine at birth, this is the age of the children, and this is the hours per day that we get to spend with them. And at birth, obviously, they spend virtually all their time with mom and dad, don't they? Understandable. But by age five, you begin to see what happens. The cone is getting narrower. And they go off to school, something interesting happens. We lose about half of our time with those kids. Well, the, the, the cone goes on, and as you can see, by the time they're 15 or 16, 
and they're playing travel league soccer and they get their driver's license, well, you understand. And you know what? By the time they're 18 and they leave home, our opportunity to influence our kids, and they've left home, is 99% done. And guys, this isn't a bad thing. So don't get me wrong. This is not a bad thing. I think God intended that this is the way it would be. They're intended to leave the home. They're intended to leave the nest. But hopefully by that time, we will have given them the training and the principles and given them the spiritual and the emotional toolbox so that when they leave home, they're ready to go, as ready as any 18 or 19-year-old is going to be. But here's something interesting that most dads don't realize about the 18-year horizon. You can believe this as you look at the diagram. If you did the math on that, somewhere around age five or six, we cross the halfway point for all the hours we will ever get to spend with that child before they leave home. Five or six. And we haven't even started teaching anything of substance, have we? Because they're just five or six. Now, don't minimize those first five or six years. They're learning a great deal, that is for sure. But I just want to point out to you that the time is very short. And, and gentlemen, if we let that 18-year horizon close, and it comes to the end, and we think that we're going to just have a conversation with our son or daughter the night they go off to college, and say, you know, and now it's time to remember, now you're going out to be an adult, walk with the Lord. Guys, we have no one to blame but ourselves. If we let the window of opportunity close and we haven't used those 18 years that God has given us. So I hope today that one of the things you'll resolve coming away from this is that passing the baton is not a book to be read. It is a book to be done. And it'll take you 18 years or 20 years to do it if God gives you that time frame in your own family with your own kids. Deuteronomy 11, 19 and following says, teach them to your children, talking about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up so that the days, your days and the days of your children may be many in the land. Now, that is a Hebrew poetic way of saying we teach these principles when life happens. It, it doesn't mean, Moses is not saying, every night at 6 o'clock, you demand that your kids are at the supper table, and we don't break that rule, and we're going to have a talk time, and we're going to learn about biblical principles every night at 6. No. That's not the way it works, and you'll drive your kids away the minute you try to enforce that kind of thing. What Moses is saying and what God's plan is, is that we do it as life happens. In other words, when there are teachable moments. And then we're going to talk this morning about how to create teachable moments. You just can't force this on a 12 or a 14-year-old at 6 o'clock when they're going off to do their homework and say, but I've got this principle I need to teach you. No, we wait and we create teachable moments. Dads, every one of the dads in this room and every one of the granddads mean well, or you wouldn't be here. 
but we have to understand what teachable moments are so that we have it up here and it's ready to go so that when that event in life happens and you're driving somewhere in the car or it's after a sports game or there is you know, some event where all of a sudden your son or daughter is attuned to this principle and they're thinking and there's a real life illustration right in front of them. You've got it here and you're ready to go. Lacking that, life happens real quick and all of a sudden the 18 year horizon comes to a point and, and they're going home, they're leaving without that. So today we're gonna to be looking, as I've said, at the what to do, what do you teach them, and the how do you create teachable moments. And there's, when we talk about teaching life's principles, <clears throat> could there be a larger subject? I mean, this is so big, it's bigger than life. So how in the world do you get a handle on that? Well, we're gonna try to unpack that a little bit this morning, and so I'd like to begin, as the book does, and break this down into a little bit more bite-sized pieces. We can break all of life's principles probably into four categories. Let's start with spiritual principles. There are those spiritual principles. We'll talk about a few of them today. Uh, the, th the kind of thing that you'd probably find in scripture somewhere. And then there's general principles. And I make the distinction that everything you're gonna find in passing the baton certainly is from a biblical worldview, as you would imagine. But there's a whole lot of general principles out there that you're just, that's just the way life works. And you're not gonna exactly find it in scripture, are you? But this is the kind of stuff that we want our sons and our daughters to know before they're 45, and they find out that, gee, it, 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 it isn't in the scripture anywhere, but this is how life works. Well, then there's general skills. A little bit of a difference because this is something you learn to do. It's not something you know in your head, but you can learn to do it at the hand of your father. And then finally, there's financial principles. I think that deserves a whole category unto itself. Boy, there are some basics in scripture and there are some good authors out there, but let me tell you guys, they're not gonna get it in school. They will not get financial principles in school. And if, it, if they don't get it from you, they will not get it. And that's some of the biggest area of, of difficulty for young adults and young families. We know this. We'll talk about that. Now, beyond these four areas of, of separation, we can further separate them by age range. Now it's beginning to become a little more manageable. Each of these four principles then can be broken down that there are some that apply to elementary age kids, age 7 to 12. Now, the, the principles are true whether you're seven or 70, but I'm just saying that a seven or an eight-year-old can understand it and get it, and you can have a great conversation with, a, with an eight or a nine-year-old. And then there's young teens. Some of these principles really only are best suited to a young teen. Let's call it 13 to 16. And then there are some things that, as you would appreciate, really only make sense and are applicable to someone in their older teens, 17 into their early 20s. So if we break them by age range, now we're beginning to get a sense of what works for each student wherever they are in life. So with that as a backdrop, let's spend the rest of our time
just looking at a few examples and getting a sense of how this would work in your home and in mine. <clears throat> I am going to take a, a short water here. Thank you. <clears throat> the first one in spiritual principles. Uh, so in your notes, that's where we are on spiritual principles. I call it the black dog, white dog principle. Gentlemen, did you know that you own two dogs? And that I own two dogs? Now, whether you have any pets in your house or not, doesn't matter. But in a very real way, we all own two dogs. And I call them the black dog and the white dog. Because the black dog is that tendency that we all have towards lust and pornography and all things of that ilk. And I don't need to tell you, every man in the room today, we're all cut out of the same cloth, and the scripture makes it clear, we're all sinners. And you know what, if you've got red blood running in your veins, you know what I'm talking about. We're, we're attracted, more or less, to this business of lust and pornography. But there's a white dog, too. And the scripture calls this the new nature, and it is our innate nature, especially for those of us that have been saved and we've put our faith in Jesus Christ, and our lives have been made new. It is that desire in our lives to be men of integrity and men of character and men who really are on the inside and privately what we want everybody to think we are in public. You, you have it, so do I. That's part of our nature. So we have this black dog and this white dog that live in the house with us. Now, here's the way that the dogs work, though. The black dog, like any vicious animal, if he's given enough red meat over time, he will grow. And in 20 years, or you pick the time frame, any vicious animal will turn on you and he will inflict pain and suffering on you and your family. Guaranteed, that's what vicious animals do. But conversely, guys, the white dog, by the principles of replacement, if you starve the black dog, but you feed the white dog, and it has to go both ways. It's not just only a matter of starving the white black dog. But if you feed the white dog, he can become stronger. And your, your, your principle of character and integrity in your life wins the day. Now, here's what I, why I, I put this out first in our principles. Guys, our young boys are cut out of the same cloth that we are. And our 12-year-olds are going to get hit with this. We, we know that. But how many of us today would wish that our dads would have come alongside us when we were 10 or 11 or 12? and created an open door and a, and a relationship of trust and conversation and a vocabulary so that this young 12-year-old has some idea of what to talk about and that this is even there and what a black dog is and what a black dog is going to become. Now, you don't have to scare them when they're 12, but you get the point. Create this dialogue. This is one of those principles that isn't going to get handled on a Saturday morning and you're done with it. This will be a principle that will be going on for 10 years. And praise God, if you do, when he's 22, I believe that you'll, be you'll be talking about it with victory. <clears throat> with victory. 
because now this 22-year-old will have a long legacy of having worked with you on how to get a handle <clears throat> and to have victory with the black dog before he's 35 and his wife is threatening to leave him because she keeps finding pornography in the house. We all know guys that are in various stages of this. I'm just telling you today, you know that. I'm just telling you today that the earlier you get with your boys and create a dialogue in this way, you can have victory in this. I want to mention one thing in relation to this. We're not going to get into a long discussion about technical or medical issues. But know this. This is not just an issue of sin, like lying or cheating. Pornography, medical science is proving beyond any doubt that pornography is, becomes an addiction. There are brain stuff. There is, there's fluids. Call, I'm, not a med, I'm not a doctor. But this is the truth. And there becomes an addiction, just like you can have a nicotine addiction or a caffeine addiction or an alcohol addiction. My point in saying this isn't to just dramatize it, but it is to say that if that 12-year-old continues down the path of pornography till he's 20, you've got a very different circumstance going on than if you're dealing with it when he's 12 or 13. And if he's 35, you've got a real different circumstance. Addiction over time, roots like any tree get deeper. You get my point. We'll go from there to something that I call sin plus time equals disaster. And now you'll see this is built for the elementary age. And that's why I've written it in this arithmetic formula. Because a seven or an eight or a nine-year-old will understand arithmetic. Sin plus time equals disaster. Um, guys, if we've done any teaching or if our kids are part of this church, our kids probably have some idea about sin, don't they? But I wonder how many of our kids understand the relationship between sin and time. Let me ask you, how many of the men in this room could really explain what I'm going for here on the relationship between sin and time? Here's the relationship. Sin is, is a willful transgression and a, and a walking away from God and his principles. You mix it with time, however, and it becomes a different thing. Now, our kids would say, if they know about sin, they probably know about forgiveness. That's true. And so ask your kids, well, if, if you get, ask for forgiveness today, or you ask for forgiveness five years from now, will you be forgiven? Yeah, you'd be forgiven. But the consequences and that is what time is all about. The consequences that take root if we don't nip our sin early and ask for forgiveness and repent and turn away from it, oh, the consequences become a very different thing. And that's why sin plus time becomes a different thing. And I don't think our kids all know that. They don't naturally know that. Here's an example. Uh, guys, sometime in the summer, late in summer, if you have an elementary student, or this would apply to even high schoolers. Go to an overgrown, vacant lot 
that is just overrun with thorns and thistles and for years. Maybe it's part of your neighbor's lawn. I don't know. But you pick, pick the thing, and, you, and you're going out for a principle. Now, by the way, this is the pattern, a little digression. This is the pattern that you'll read about in the book of creating a teach time or, or going for a principle. You go do something that your son or daughter really enjoys. doesn't have to be a big event. It could be just Saturday morning McDonald's with them. That can be, a, you'd be surprised how our kids will appreciate the small things as well as the big events. But you go do something that they really enjoy, not that you enjoy. And if sometimes it's together with kids, it can be different ages. Sometimes it'll be singly, depending on what you're going to teach. But only after you've done something that they enjoy, then you come back and over some french fries or over a burger, you share the principle that you have in mind. And then that becomes part of the understood package deal. Dad has a principle to share, so we're going to go do something fun Friday night or give them a surprise break from homework. That's always a winner. Surprise break from homework because I've got a principle we're going to share. But you go do something they really enjoy and then share the principle privately away from home. Doesn't work real well. I mean, if there's a teachable moment that just happens, don't miss it. But generally speaking, we're getting out of the house. So back to the, back to the uh, sin plus time, and you, you've gone to this overgrown lo uh, lot, and you have a conversation. Now, you aren't teaching any principle yet. You're just out for doing something. And you say to them, well, how many hours would it take to clean this place up? Let them speculate. Oh, Dad, this could take three guys six hours, and you'd need some equipment. Oh, really? Well, what would happen in the first summer if, when, the, when the weeds were little? How much then? Well, Dad, that, you know, one guy could have just kept that real neat. Okay, that's the point. And then an hour later when you're teaching, you talk about sin plus time equals disaster. You give a vacant lot and you give a person enough time with sin going on, and you've got a disaster on your hands that will take a lot of work to clean it up. So if our kids see the lot and they understand what time does. I share an illustration with you. It's probably not the best one to use for your seven-year-old. But if you know about the story of David and Bathsheba, you and I will talk about that. David was the king of Israel. Times were good. And he's on his roof one day, and he sees a woman bathing, and she's Bathsheba, and he knows better, but oh, things are going great, and the army's off doing its thing, and he, he's the king. I love the joke. It's good to be king. And he calls for Bathsheba, and of course, Bathsheba comes, and you know the rest of the story. He has a son with Bathsheba, and because he is the king and greatly feared and revered, he doesn't want to admit to this. And it goes on for a year. And he hides his sin, and he tries to put it off on her husband, Uriah. That doesn't work, so he has Uriah killed out on the battlefield. Yeah, the story gets worse. The point is, after a year, the prophet Nathan comes to him, and he said, let's clean this up. You are the man, and you are guilty of this. Now, 
he, was he forgiven? We go back to that point I made a, a moment ago. Yeah, he was forgiven. But use the scripture to learn for, for our own lives. The consequences of this weren't wiped away. That's the problem. Forgiveness doesn't mean that all of life's consequences get wiped away. And the consequences in David's life were that it sowed havoc in his home. And if you read the stories of David's life, Absalom and his rebellion, Tamar, rape in his own home, this all went back. There was a generation of havoc, and it all had its roots back when he gets off the rails with he and Bathsheba. So I use that as an example to you that time has a way of doing that. Let's move on. Let's move from spiritual principles into general principles. The ATS principle. How many of you in the room know what ATS stands for? And Mark, you can't answer. Anybody? I didn't think so. ATS. ATS stands for and then some. Now here's how it works. Actually, you have three friends, and I have three friends. Now, they go by different names, but we know these guys. And the first friend uh, promised to help you put up your garage door opener. But when the two-man part of the job came around, he was nowhere to be found. And so today, you're still getting out of your car in the rain because you don't have a garage door opener that works. That's your first friend. The second friend uh, agreed with you to come and help set up the children's Christmas program at church. And that was six weeks ago when he agreed. And on the Saturday morning of, uh, sure enough, he showed up, toolbox in hand, and he's there. And the sets got put up, and it all went well. Problem is, no one really noticed much because five other guys came with their toolboxes. And, you know, nobody's the hero there. We all worked on Saturday morning. Now, the third friend, though, is a supplier to your company. And he took a small contract from you, and it was for $1,000. And he did the job, and it was delivered on time, and it was delivered right. But when the invoice came in to you, it was for 970 So you called him, and you said, what's up? Why, why is it cheaper? Well, he said, our costs came in a little lower than we thought, and we were able to pass part of the savings on to you. Wow. Now, there's a guy you can sail in a storm with. There's a guy who will probably get the next job, won't he? He did what he promised, and then some. ATS. And that difference is, let's just call it that 5%. A lot of guys give 100%. Not enough, but a lot of guys do. And you know what? Basically, no one knows, notices. It just keeps you out of trouble, doesn't it? But if you give 105% of what is expected, ATS, all of a sudden, man, you're a hero. Nobody expects to give more, to, to receive more than they expected. That 105% is huge. I love to tell this story. So in our family, we had just gone over this. And Graham, my youngest, is, oh, he's seven, maybe eight years old. 
And the neighbors were going on vacation. And so they hire Graham to water their flowers every day at their house. Now, when you hire a seven-year-old, of course, you're basically hiring his dad. So there you go. So they've got me too. So the first day we go over together, and I'm going to help Graham get started on this thing. And he asks me, well, Dad, how could we do ATS here? I'm just saying, wow, great. He was listening. You know, he's only, what, eight years old. I said, well, all right. Praise God. Uh, Let's think about that. Well, the garden hose is laying out all over the yard, uh, making a dry spot, you know, in the yard in the summer. And there's some weeds growing up here. And he said, well, yeah, we could, we could wind up the hose real neat under the spigot like we do at home, and we could maybe pull a few weeds. They didn't ask us to do that. Great. Okay, so we do that. Two weeks later, they come home, and the flowers are looking great. There's no weeds in the flowers, and you just know that hose hasn't been wound up in the last two years here. But it is today. Well, they noticed, and Graham noticed that they noticed, and I think they gave him an extra couple of bucks or something. But when you're eight years old, that counts. And he got his first taste of ATS, and I was thrilled. Anything to build a little more responsibility into an eight-year-old, you do it. But here's the point. You can apply this when you're eight years old and watering flowers, or you can apply this at the Fortune 500 level. It works. And you teach a seven, an eight, a nine-year-old, what ATS is, and I tell you it will make a difference in their relationship with adults when they're kids and their relationship with peers and in their, in their professional lives when they grow up. Uh, trust me, it, it's part of the vocabulary in our house. Graham is now, what is he, 23? He's married, living in Washington, D.C. Every few months... He doesn't have to, but every few months, he says, well, guess what, Dad? I had a little ATS today, and here's what happened, and something, 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 and I'm just saying praise God, because that's how life really works. Let's move on. Talk about alcohol for a minute. And in order to do this, I need a couple of volunteers. I need maybe one or two volunteers. Anybody? I need two guys. Come on. Right there and right here. Come on up. There you go. Now, right here on this little stool, here's a dice. I need you to roll me a six. Roll a six? I need you to roll me a six, just right here on the, on the stool. See if you can do that. A one, no, that won't do it. Okay. I need a six. All right, let's see. Three, keep going. Four, six. All right, give it a try here. I need you to roll me a six. Three, three, five, getting closer, five, two, okay, we're going to stop there. One guy gets a six in a couple of rolls, the other one t- takes a little longer. Thank you, gentlemen, you can have a seat. We'll get to why we were rolling sixes in just a minute, but I want to talk with you for a moment about the alcohol decision. You're going to find out in a minute that I've got an opinion on this. Uh, But let's talk about it for a little bit first. Um, 
Gentlemen, you all made the decision at some point in your life whether you're going to drink alcohol or not. And your children and your grandchildren are going to also make that decision. No question about that. Now, depending on how you handle this, they're going to make that decision somewhere around 15, 16, 17, 18. Lord willing. But I think it's important that on a, on a huge decision like this, that you don't just leave this to their best judgment. And when I say judgment, that's a term that we use loosely when it comes to 16-year-olds. I'm serious. They're not built to have good judgment, are they? That's why they still have dads and they're living at home. 16-year-olds aren't known to have good judgment. So is it any way to handle a decision like this if when they're 16 and they've got their driver's license and you say, well, you're going out, it's Friday night, you're going to be with your friends, so tonight um, you got the car, so don't embarrass the family and walk with the Lord tonight. What is that to a 16-year-old? And by the way, he or she doesn't have bad intentions, and they're going to be out, let's just say, they're out with good kids. These are, this isn't the wrong crowd. But they're out with 15 of their friends in some environment, and all of a sudden, there's an opportunity to drink. What do you think a 16-year-old is going to do? That is not the way to make an important lifelong decision. That's for sure. No matter what your decision is, that's not the way to do it. So let's talk about that for a minute. If it's me, we have a very logical, not angry, but a loving, logical, thoughtful, two-directional discussion with our son and daughter. And let's talk about this. And let's say, well, son, if you agree to, dr- if you think you're going to drink, or if you choose to drink, let's talk about the consequences of that. So first of all, you're out with your friends, and you know you didn't think you had drunk too much, uh, but you did get a driving under the influence ticket. Hmm. What does that do? Well, the reputation issue with that. Uh, the implications of your job, if you have a a part-time job, or later on when they look at your record and you've got a DUI, it can be significant. I won't take long to tell you, but I'll just briefly mention, in our prayer group at my former church, a mom was there, her son, exact circumstance. They, They were good kids, and they meant well. They even had a designated driver. So these kids were not on a wild tear. But the designated driver took them home, and then he had to go home. And long story short, again, they're just 18 or 17 years old. Things don't go according to plan. And he gets a ticket on the way home. Breathalyzer test. Driving under the influence. Now he's got that on his record, and he can't rent a car. And his job required that he periodically rents a car. His boss had a big problem with this. I don't think he lost his job over it. But safe to say, I won't take any more time to explain. You get the point. Driving under the influence is just the beginning. How about 
we were out and I got a ticket and I'm 18 years old and what the heck my car insurance just tripled and instead of $300 every six months for my car insurance now it's $900 every six months dad if this happens to your son or daughter it won't just affect them it will affect you because he will not be able to pay the cost of the increase on that insurance and then you've got a choice of either you pay it for him or you let the chips fall hard and he doesn't drive and you're driving your 17 18 year old around to his events pick your poison which would you rather have how about a third possibility we were out and we were drinking and yes there was an accident and yeah there was a serious injury or there was a death there was a fatality could there be a more painful experience for the driver for the young man or woman who meant well who never intended to be on a wild tear but they were just you know and and again they didn't think they were drinking too much but when you're 17 and you're just starting this thing of called drinking how do you know how much is too much you don't a fatality how about you're in a group and you've been drinking and the things you say or the things you do not only can be sinful but they can be embarrassing or worse yet incriminating George Bush the most recent George W tells the story in his memoirs in his book I don't know some of you probably read it George W was a pretty heavy drinker before he gave his life to Christ and he stopped drinking after that but he tells the story that he's sitting around a table of adults and his dad is the president of the United States so you can imagine the group sitting around the table and there's a beautiful woman beautiful woman sitting across the table from him and George has been drinking too much and as he as he relates the story he says so now in front of the group so what's sex like after 50 now whether she was over 50 or not doesn't matter but he's been drinking too much and his inhibitions are down and the president of the United States is there and he says something like that and you and I both know that it goes south from there that's the kind of thing you tell in a memoir but it gets worse if you've been drinking too much and you aren't able to control what you say alcoholism sure that's a huge issue no one ever intends to be an alcoholic but every alcoholic started out drinking as a teenager somewhere along the line they never intended to now the medical science is complex but medical science would tell us that some of us are more prone to alcoholism than others it could be a little bit like obesity some of us are more prone to these things than others but you don't know do you and I'll tell you what if you ask any ACOA adult child of alcoholic who's in counseling when they're 50 because of what their dad or their mom did to their home life 
oh, they didn't want to. They loved their kids. But alcoholism ruins a family relationship. And they're in counseling when they're 50. That's what ACOA is. And tens of thousands in America are in that because they're, they're children of alcoholics. And they're trying to work out as adults what was going on in their life when they were kids. Finally, one last point, as if this isn't enough. We all have a generational responsibility. Guys, when our kids are 19 and they walk out the door, our job isn't done. Because what we did when they were kids almost certainly will be replicated in the next generation and in the next generation. So what we do as when they're kids, in this case in terms of alcohol, absolutely has an impact on what they're going to do and what the grandkids do. So now let's go back a moment to why we were rolling dice a minute ago. You see, the first guy rolled dice, and he got a six fairly quickly. And the second guy rolled dice, and he didn't get one right away. It, it took several rolls, and you know what? Even though he didn't get one, here's the point. You and I both know that if you roll dice long enough, 100% odds you will get a six, right? And my point is this. Maybe you drink wine and you have a beer after mowing the lawn and you're good and you get to be you go to your re, your reward and glory someday and you're fine and maybe your kids maybe you don't roll a six and maybe your kids nobody becomes an alcoholic and nobody has a driving under the influence and there's no fatalities the point of the sixes however is that as this pattern is replicated the odds approach 100% that somebody in your immediate family and your loved ones is going to have a serious problem with alcohol in one of these examples. So I'm not here today, guys, to give you a legalistic rule that you can't drink. I think you get the impression I don't. And it's not because I think the Bible tells me I can't or shouldn't. But this is one of those general principles in my mind. This is how life works. And I love my kids, and I love my grandkids, and I'm not going to roll sixes, man. I leave it to you, but I would tell you this. Whatever you do, don't leave this decision to a 16-year-old to be made in front of 15 of his friends. And, well, after that, you know, kind of, we just fell into it. Let me take... I see a question. Let me take questions when we're all done. Thank you. We'll move on. Trips, rewards, and ceremonies. In the book, there is one chapter that actually covers about six or seven things. And in the course of an entire lifetime, or well, childhood, we'll call it, 18, 20 years, you and I as dads or granddads have the opportunity to create some extremely powerful, memorable moments. Now, you can't have too many of these, or they all merge together and they're not memorable anymore. But in our experience, there were, uh, there were, let's see, what six of them. I'm not going to take time to go through all of those, and, and you can read about those. I think it's, it's, it's interesting stuff. Uh, 
But the last one is called the 18-year-old dinner. Here's how it works. When your son or your daughter is 18, and you've been working through this stuff for a while, and you've, the 18-year horizon is part of the family vocabulary, and they're looking forward to it. This isn't a negative thing. And they're looking forward to whatever they're going to do. They're going to leave home and be a young adult on their own. They're going to college or they're going to the military or they're going somewhere. But that's another subject we want to talk about sometime. But they're going to go because we do no favors. I'm digressing for a moment. We do no favors to our sons particularly if we enable them and we allow them to live at home without cost well into their 20s. We take their manhood away from them if, if we give them the impression that they can't make it on their own without living in mom and dad's house and eating mom's cooking. But that's another discussion. So I'm digressing. The 18-year dinner, however, though, is a positive and an exciting time because at this point, your son or daughter are going to see the end of the 18-year horizon coming. They're seeing that their, their time of living at home will be coming to a close. And by that time, you will have worked through the ATS principle, and you'll have worked through alcohol, and you'll have worked through sin plus time and disaster and, and 50 other principles by that time. You'll have expended hours and maybe a few gray hairs and there will have been tears shed, and there will have been love built, and there will be relationship built because of the time and the investment that you've put into their lives. And now it's coming to an end. So here's what I'm suggesting. With your son or your daughter, you plan this together. You share the responsibility of doing this. You pick a favorite restaurant that you know well. You've all been there before. You get a private room at that restaurant. You spend the money you can afford, whatever that is. And then you invite a few guests, and here's how it works. If it's your son, this is how it unfolded in our family, you invite four or five key individuals that had an influence for good in your son's life. Maybe it was a coach, a youth worker at church, or a music instructor, or a, whatever it was, but somebody that had a strong positive influence for faith and for Jesus Christ and for character in your son or your daughter's life. And you invite them, and you tell them, we're going to have an 18-year-old dinner for my son Joe. And they'll come because they know Joe, and they've already invested time, and, and, or they wouldn't get an, an invitation, and they'll come. And so together, you and these four or five other men go to this dinner, and you enjoy a wonderful meal together. Make it steak and shrimp for everybody, because this is an important meal. And by the way, this is a lifetime experience that they will never forget. So you dignify it, and you put on a tie, and your son puts on a tie, and tell the other men, there's a dress code on this one, and it's a tie. And if it's your daughter, she wears a dress because this is not a casual dinner. And then you have the dinner and you eat the meal together and you enjoy a wonderful meal. And then, and this is where it gets difficult for me to share it. 
because it's, it was uh, six and nine years ago, respectively, in my home. And I can tell you it was like yesterday, how this unfolded. So you have the meal, and then you start around the circle of the men that are there. And you let each one talk. It doesn't have to be long, three or four minutes. And you explain ahead of time, they're ready to do this. And they, they talk personally to your son, Joe. And they say, Joe, be like me. This is a huge day in your life. This is your 18-year dinner. Today, going forward, you're going to be a man on your own. Oh, you may not leave for a few weeks, but you know what we mean. Tonight's the night. Walk with God. Be like me. We did this together, Joe. Remember on the football field or remember, you know, in church? And then the next guy and the next guy and the next guy. And it ends with you. You're the last one. And in front of the other men, you have three minutes eye to eye with your son or your daughter like you'll never have again. And it is that powerful, and that's why it's such an important event. You dignify it, they have dignified it, and you challenge them to say, from now on, you've come to the end of the 18-year horizon, and you're on your own. Oh, sure, I'll always be your dad, and I love you, and we'll always be there, but after tonight, it's a little different. That kind of dignified experience has immense weight. That's an 18-year-old dinner. This is a picture of, that we took for Graham's dinner. Graham's right there. This is his older brother, Colson, who is three years older. That's my dad, who flew in from California. Took a few bucks, but I flew him in for this one, and he wouldn't miss it. That's Laura's dad who joined us that night. And then there were the other four guys that weren't taken in that picture. That's how the 18-year dinner unfolds. I want to uh, wrap up with one more illustration, guys, and then we'll take some time for questions. Circles of responsibility. What in the world is that? Well, I think this diagram will help us all understand something that is true, and if it's, it's not shown in your notes, so I would encourage you to just draw this thing as we go. Circles of responsibility. This is another one of these examples of how life works. How much responsibility is required of a boy living at home or a young girl, daughter, living at home? Well, we try to give them some, but frankly not that much, right? Because they're a child living at home. But when that son or daughter goes off to college, then what? Well, it's huge. You, you, we all know positive and negative stories here. Kids who have gone to college and squandered the tuition and their time and didn't make it, dropped out. Or there's kids who really know what they're getting into and commit to a four-year program, whatever the, whatever the program was, and they make it, and they expand that, and here we are, that circle of responsibility got larger, didn't it? 
Now, I want to just digress for a moment. Some of you that were the academic types and the mathematicians in the room when you were in high school, I'm going to just talk to you for a minute. You already understand this. What's the area of a circle? And how does the area of a circle enlarge when you notch it out? It's not one or two inches. It's exponential, isn't it? And as a circle gets larger, the amount of area inside that circle very quickly gets vastly larger. And so my illustration is this. The amount of responsibility by a boy, and even at the college level, is small compared to when you get out to the edges, isn't it? But that's the way God intended it. So let's track along with this for just a minute. So the, the son or the daughter goes off to college. The next step in our circles of responsibility is a career path. I think you're beginning to see a pattern here. The pattern is this. The outer circle relies on the inner circle right beneath it, doesn't it? You can't really have a career without some training. Now, I've said college. It could be vocational training or some, maybe the military. But some serious training, and that is the pattern in all of life. We learn at the hand of a master, whether it is a college professor or someone else, or a journeyman mechanic. But you get your training before you can pull off a career. Well, following a career, again, now you get the pattern. Then there's a marriage. We all have examples. It's possible. Nothing is impossible. But I want to tell you that the normal pattern of life is that, generally speaking, a marriage follows after a young man has the ability to pay for a family in a marriage, in a career. The young man who is just out of boyhood and is in his first year of college and says, I'm going to hopscotch and I'm going to leap over and go to right to marriage. Nothing's impossible, guys, but I'm here to tell you that circles of responsibility would tell you that that is not the normal pattern of life. And if you're going to hopscotch the normal pattern of life, the risks of failure and the work involved in doing it is vastly more challenging. You get it. I'll, I'll just leave it at that. Beyond a marriage comes a family. Worst of all, if you're a college guy and you find yourself with a family and you don't even have a marriage, let alone a career, you get the point. These circles are built on the preceding circle. Now, finally, beyond a family is a ministry. Maybe it's just in your local church. Maybe it's a national ministry. But once again, for even the guy that has a national ministry, it rests upon his reliance upon his family, doesn't it? If a man avoids and doesn't nurture his family, but he's got a national ministry, he's on thin ice. It's probably a matter of time before something goes wrong. And a family man, a dad, who doesn't nurture his marriage? Now, that's a formula for a foul-up. You spend all your time being a great dad and in this ministry, but you don't minister to your marriage? 
It's a problem. You get the interconnected relationship between these circles. Here's my point. Our sons and our daughters need to have a clear understanding of this. And it will, it will prevent and it will solve myriad challenges along the way. Because if, son, if our son comes to you, your son comes to you and he's 17 years old and says, Dad, I love this girl. I'm sure I'm in love. And we're going to get married. I, I'm putting away 400 bucks and I can get a ring. That is no time to make the first discussion about circles of responsibility. Pray that you've had that discussion four times before then, and in his private moments, before any young man or daughter who's going to say yes to a young man who says, we got to get married. Just got to. Can't wait. And someone in that room had better be able to say, you know, the circles of responsibility would, would tell us otherwise. How life really works. You're not going to find that in scripture, but tell your sons, tell our daughters how they're interrelated and how they build one upon another. And if you do, oh, there's no guarantees in life. And I'm not saying everybody's life story is going to unfold perfectly. I bet there aren't many men in this room whose life story did unfold perfectly like this. But if we don't even know the model, if we don't know the pattern, if we don't understand that one rests on the circle before it, our, our odds of, of blowing it up are much higher. Guys, we return to the 18-year horizon. Where are you today? Do you have two-year-olds, five-year-olds? Do you have kids at home? Do you have grandkids? I just want to encourage you that three things are important that we want to think about in, in wrapping up here. Dads, if you are mindful of these principles and you see an opportunity, a teachable moment when it comes up, or you can create a teachable moment through going out for a principle, you'll be blessed by it and your kids will be blessed by it. How will they be blessed? Well, your kids will learn early in life how to make positive decisions and how to avoid mistakes that can be very painful if they bump into them for the first time when they're 30 or 40 or 50 years old. But even perhaps more importantly, your kids will see you as a leader and a mentor. They will understand the biblical concept of God as what a father is. Did you know all of us, without exception, when we think about God in heaven, we are unavoidably guided in those thoughts by what our concept of our earthly father was. God the Father, what does that mean to you? What does that mean to you? We, we can't ignore the fact that it will always be tied up, oh, we understand God's perfect and my dad wasn't. But our concept of father... And our kids' concept can be greatly improved if we live this out. Our boys, in the, in the doing of all this, our boys will become what you are and what you're teaching. And our daughters will marry what you are and what you're teaching.
And with that as a backdrop, it will affect the next generation and the next generation after that. And you will live out that generational responsibility that I mentioned earlier. Thanks for being here this morning.